welcome back to The Journey in episode 67. I hope you enjoyed the look back at my last year with the Princess Kona. It's been fun and an entertaining ride, to be sure. You'll probably hear from her again as we go forward. In fact, on Saturday, she had her professional photo shoot for the Animal Welfare League of Arlington's calendar cover. She didn't really like the photographer very much, but, you know, she's not really keen on new people until she gets to know who they are. In addition, this past weekend was the honoring of our nation's veterans. I served with so many amazing people. Many, as you know, were instrumental in my career, and I hope that I, too, had an equal positive impact on those that I served with. I give a special salute to my former cadets at the University of Texas at Austin and the women and men of the 341st Services Squadron. Back to NDU. This was a very different assignment than any other, and I think that's one of the best attributes of serving in the Air Force and the military in general. Each assignment provides experiences and unique challenges along the way that you just simply can't get in almost any other occupation. In this case, even though I was a member of the senior administrative staff, it was definitely not like my experiences at either the major command or the air staff. It was also my first assignment in a joint environment. And while I had worked with others across the military services before, this was still quite different. As I mentioned two weeks ago, even though I was promoted to lieutenant colonel early in my tenure, I was in a position equivalent to a colonel or GM-15. And since I was working with colonels and general officers at the various colleges and schools under the NDO umbrella, because of the military, that always adds a unique aspect to the work to be done. In fact, when you go in as a major and get promoted so soon, Sometimes they think you're really just still a major. As I look back, with the exception of my first two assignments as an operations officer at Randolph and then Osan, I was always in a billet or position higher than the grade I wore. So I already had some tricks up my sleeve on how to get what I needed done with more senior people. The first challenge was setting up the new institutional research office within academic affairs. I had to first learn what that was. Institutional research, otherwise called IR, is a unique data data gathering and data collection that allows leaders to make important decisions. To best learn what it is and what it's not, I met with many of the local colleges and universities' offices of IR, and that was very helpful in, in developing relationships with local institutions. There are many universities in the Washington, D.C. area, as you may know. Jim was already a member of the consortium, and so some doors were already open. In addition, I researched what professional conferences existed as well. It's important to note that in addition to visits by the Accreditation Association on a periodic basis, there is a requirement for self-studies in an annual update to ensure that the institution continues to improve processes as well as demonstrate that the standards are being maintained. It's very intensive, and it occupied a lot of Susan's time because she was responsible for the self-studies. The Office of IR was one of those areas identified as needing both creation and implementation across the entire organization beyond those that awarded degrees. Institutional research is designed to provide senior leaders and decision-makers with data 
to provide a sound basis in making decisions about almost every aspect of the institution, including admissions, curriculum assessment, enrollment management, staffing, student life, finance facilities, and alumni relations. And yes, even military institutions have alumni programs as well as student life requirements. Since the back of the house of IR is highly technical and expertise that I don't have, we got an extra billet for a military company-grade officer with that technical expertise. We hired the best candidate for the right time. He was a lieutenant with a master's degree from MIT with incredible skills across the entire spectrum of information technology. Now, of course, the university already had an IT office, and we needed someone who could speak their language in moving the IR program forward. And Mike was perfect. The office of IR was born, and we moved pretty quickly in identifying what types of information and data we needed from each college and school. Getting the information was the hard part. In addition to the issues of pay grade, there were issues of data protection by various parts of the university. It's our information, and we're not sharing it with you, even though we're the umbrella university. In part, this is why the change of my duty title helped, and still, it would take my best efforts to corral cats. I would lean on my expertise at both ACC and the AIR staff, as well as my experience at UT with the accreditation project of working across the entire organization. That's the leadership lesson of the day. We build on our experiences in building consensus and at times shepherding those who need a lot of extra persuasion to move them along. And a lot of people needed a lot of persuasion. While the creation of the IR office was very busy on the front end, once we had the reports starting to generate and the data identified, then the process became obviously less time-consuming, especially for me. While even some of the senior leaders were a little skeptical about what the office was supposed to do, once we generated unique reports that they never had before because they didn't have the data, they realized the value of the IR office, and that was a very good thing. In addition to IR, one of the roles that I really enjoyed was my second hat as assistant vice president. It was part of the team with Jim and Susan. NDU was still in that post-accreditation stage, and we had to move a number of policies to align them with higher education. A challenge for most universities is that the academic affairs, or provost offices, don't have leaders with degrees in higher education. In our case, both Susan and I did. Susan's doctorate was from the University of Maryland, College Park, and of course, mine was from William & Mary. And this was truly amazing. Now, Susan was far smarter than I was, and she had a lot more experience in the administration because she had been at NDU for quite a few years before the accreditation process. So in some ways, it was a great learning experience for me having conversations with her. Those conversations were amazing because they were very collegial, and we talked about the issues of the day for the office. So this was a role where I could use my education in a very direct way to benefit the Department of Defense. We would sit in the office and share our perspectives of the issue, whether it was faculty development, student academics, tenure, and so forth. She would come at the issue with a perspective that sometimes was different than mine, in fact, oftentimes different than mine. 
And each time we came to an agreement about what was the best way to present a proposal to Jim that was a blend of our views or more, more one side than the other. These were some of the best conversations that I've ever had in higher education. One of the tenuous issues was the issue of tenure. At NDU, faculty were a blend of military officers and civilian faculty. Some had academic rank from other institutions, and some were what we would best describe as practitioners of practice. Up until the accreditation process, everyone was given the title of professor. And while it was more of a generic term at the time, it lent a degree of status for the faculty who were by many standards highly qualified and were dealing with colleagues from outside of NDU. We knew we had to institute an academic rank system more similar to other grad schools. It wouldn't be easy because, as I told you earlier with my own experiences, academic rank is like currency. Once you have academic rank from one institution that's accredited, then the academic rank carries to any other institution that you're going to be hired at. You can imagine that every college had strong views and it would initially impact existing faculty and we wanted to make sure we didn't do that in a negative way. Eventually, we did come to a policy agreement and it was finally signed. Another issue that we tackled early on was whether students could get credit for experience to serve as a substitute for a course. And this was where Susan and I were on polar opposites. I believe that since there were few electives in graduate school, there was little opportunity based on the senior status of the students attending that we could not award credit for experience. She believed that there were cases where it would seem appropriate, and we did land somewhere in the middle. Since the goal is to, pre is to prepare strategic leaders, by having people in the room that had various levels and depths of experience that brought about a valuable conversation. And if they were exempted from that course, that experience wouldn't be brought into the classroom. Today, I still have that view for graduate schools. Now, you may find that odd for a person who used every possible method in my undergraduate experience to earn credit to include challenging courses. My contention was that because of the mission of NDU, we needed every student to have exposure to as many views as possible, including those with exceptional experience. Another big part of my job that I really enjoyed was to travel on behalf of NDU and sometimes the United States. Those were some amazing trips. By this time, I generally traveled on American Airlines and U.S. Air. Making airline status was a lot easier then and I would try to maintain gold status on both because with the alliances they were members of, it gave you status across a wider number of airlines. It was this experience at NDU that gave me a very different personal approach to how airlines and well, rather how to deal with airlines and getting status. And it was all because of a colleague who was a civilian employee and traveled for NDU quite extensively. His advice was simple. He said, stick with one airline and stick with United. I really wondered why. And he said, well, most of my travel with NDU would be international. And United, with the association with the Star Alliance, 
would give me the most destinations with this with the family of airlines as members of Star Alliance. So that's what I did. And it was the best advice ever. Instead of trying to maintain gold on two airlines, which is the second tier of airline status, I shot for 1K, which is the highest level on United. And since this was well past 9-11, traveling was very different, and having higher airline status would give additional perks that came in quite handy, especially when you travel a lot and when you travel internationally. I'll share how some of this really benefited me a bit later in the journey. In addition to having to travel overseas, I had to get an official U.S. passport. Those are the maroon-colored passports for government officials that are traveling on official business. Higher than that are the black passports, which are the diplomatic passports. The travel office would tell us which passports to use for which trips because all the visas that were required would always go in our official passports. And we were always told to carry our personal passports as well on every trip especially when we went to countries that were in Eastern Europe and others. There is no doubt that it was this assignment and the amount of travel that I would do that inspired me to want to travel even more. Before NDU, I had only traveled to Canada. Well, and of course, I flew from Korea to the United States on that trip that I remember so very well. There was a lot to learn, both traveling abroad and traveling and representing the United States. One of the trips that I would make the most frequent during the assignment was to Rome and Vienna. NDU's reputation wasn't just among the agencies of the United States. It was the premier senior-level professional military education university worldwide. There are several countries that would ask for staff assistance visits to mirror as best they could our structure and curriculum. And I'm going to share a little about some of those trips along the way. Some of us, including Jim, would be invited as a visiting professor to a national defense university, and I got to do that too. In part, some of these staff visits were to further cultivate the relationships that we had with the International Fellows Program, which was the program where we had students from international countries all over the world attending the graduate programs. And it was in part politically to have the link of defense education. I was assigned as a member of a consortium of NATO defense universities, and there would be several meetings a year in Europe. So that would bring me to Europe at least three, four times a year. In the earlier part of the podcast, I shared some of my travel before it became Too much to do multiple episodes a week. And for some, I'll expand on those episodes and share new ones with traveling all over the world. Seriously, there are some stories that you almost had to be there to believe, and yet I'll try to do my best as I share them with you. You may remember that two weeks ago, I shared that this part of my journey and this specific assignment I had the time and ambition to get out more and do more things socially, and it was great. I don't remember how I connected with some of my friends at the time, and there were a couple of us that liked to explore the great outdoors. We would often go hiking in the Shenandoah, white rudder rafting in Pennsylvania, and did movie nights and other social activities. Since you know that I'm not the most coordinated individual, and most were more fit and younger than I was, I was up for the challenge. Hiking in the Shenandoah is fun, and there are many trails, and one of the most famous is called the Billy Goat Trail. 
It's got a lot of unique rock areas that you have to be very agile and have some amount of balance because there are reasonably steep areas. I'm not a fan of heights, and some of these were really challenging for me. Nonetheless, here we went. We went often enough to the various trails that we had a routine where we would stop at a Sheets gas station about midway out and buy ourselves sub sandwiches so we would have lunch at some point along the hike. One of the nice things about the many trails is that you would start in one place and end up at the end in another. Of course, you always had this option to hike as far as you wanted to go and then hike back the way you came. So when you're with a group, and again, most were younger than I, turning around isn't really in the cards. I remember one hike on the Billy Goat Trail when I was getting, I was getting pretty tired and for some reason I wasn't doing well with the gripping of those tenuous areas. In my head, I'm thinking, what will be a good point to stake my claim and decide to go back the way we came and then meet everyone back at the vehicle? Well, that was swirling in my head, and it probably wasn't really a good option, and I'm just not sure whether I'm going to make it or not. As I continue, my mind is more focused on how to turn around and tell them I'm going back than having the right concentration on what was ahead. So we're at the point where there's a very deep crevice that you have to scale so you don't fall down into the crevice, and I'm definitely not feeling it. I had done this hike many times before, but this particular day, it was rather challenging, and I decided that after this point, I would make my announcement that I'm going to turn back. I'm also thinking in my head that sometimes when you want to say something, well, likely others are thinking the same thing, right? Well, surely I wasn't the only one that wanted to turn around. Just as I'm about to navigate the crevice between the rocks, from the other direction come three young girls. They weren't just any young girls. They were Amish girls in their typical long gray dresses and not really hiking attire, not even hiking shoes. They bounded down the crevice and up the other side, well, almost like billy goats. I couldn't make my long-awaited announcement after seeing them do so very well, so I kept going. And, of course, I made it. None the worse for wear, I told them of my plan and how the Amish girls come bounding along. Certainly, I wasn't going to turn back if they could do it. And, of course, there were some chuckles. What I'll add is that hiking in the spring and summer were really enjoyable. Hiking in the autumn with the fall colors was really just amazing. Aside from the Billy Goat Trail, most of the trails had a lot of trees and it was just beautiful when you got to the lookout points. My other story I want to share today is when we went whitewater rafting. Now this was something I had always wanted to do and just didn't have enough folks interested to go with. So there were four or five of us, and we decided to go to Pennsylvania. Why Pennsylvania? Because the Yokogany, or Yoke for short, is well known for Class 4 and Class 5 whitewater rapids. After all, if you're going to do this, go for the gold, right? Well, even though I was the main culprit in our group to do this, after reading more about it, I was feeling a little concerned. I remember that time I went tubing down the Guadalupe River in Texas, where it's just so lazy and no rapids at all, and I freaked out because my tube turned over, 
And yet, despite the calm water and that it was only 18 inches deep at most when it happened, I can swim. In fact, we took swimming lessons when we were very young, long before moving to the farm. What I also know is that while I can swim, if I can't touch the bottom or I know I can't touch the bottom, I no longer can swim. So I'm hoping this isn't another Billy Goat trail scenario, which, oh, by the way, the boat is going to its final destination. There will be no turning back. It was amazing and perhaps one of the most amazing outdoor activities that I've ever done. And if you're chuckling, wait, there's more. We learned where to sit to avoid being tossed out of the boat. And we were also taught how to get the boat off a rock if it's caught and so forth. So when you're actually in the boat, you're trying to remember all the things that they taught you just a half hour before. We didn't have any class five rapids on this trip. We did have class two, three, and two class four ones. And those are crazy. You're tossed around in this boat. And I'm pretty sure that I had my eyes closed. I'm waving my paddle as best I could, which means I'm probably not helping at all with us moving where we're supposed to go. And I'm just hoping that I'm not getting tossed off the boat. One of us did get tossed out, but it wasn't me. He was a very experienced swimmer and actually thought it was kind of cool that he got tossed out. The whole trip was amazing. And when I said I think I might have had my eyes closed, they have points along the way that they have pictures of you and your group as you're going down the, the river. And there was a picture where it does look like my eyes were closed. We definitely picked the right company. They were excellent. And their customer service, the whole organization, and I would highly recommend if you're in the area to go do this. These adventures weren't just in the first part of my time at NDU. They actually started during my return to the D.C. metro area and lasted quite a few years well past my NDU assignment. It's just that these two adventures really stick out in my mind as very memorable times. And I'll, <coughs> excuse me, and I'll share more adventures as we move through the journey. As you can see, this period of time was unique in many ways in my life. During the first years, in hindsight, my PTSD was in remission by and large. And despite the journey that you've shared with me so far, I still didn't know what that was. I knew that the various purple rains were affecting me, and it was later in this assignment that I learned that medically, it's what I was dealing with. And that's another message of this journey. I'm sure I'm not the only person that had PTSD over a period of time and didn't even know what I was dealing with or how to deal with it. It's somewhat easy to look at this from 20 years forward. It wasn't quite so easy to look at it in the moment as you learned in episode 64. Early on, I had a great group of friends to explore with and a job that for the first time was very much like a nine-to-five job. All of that was great. Still, knowing me, I felt I needed a bit more. Next week, you'll learn how I decide to fill some of this newfound time and without knowing it, builds on the assignment at NDU and at the same time, paves the way professionally forward as well. Kona says meow, and it's hard to believe that we're heading into the final weeks of the year. Commercials for the holidays are already incredibly prevalent, and it seems earlier and earlier every year. 
I hope you're enjoying the last bits of autumn or spring, depending on where you are. For my area, it seemed like we jumped from summer right into winter, and I'm not a fan of the coals or the snow. Next week, I'll continue with some of the projects that I had at NDU and some crazy challenges as well. Always remember to have courage and be kind. It seems those words of Cinderella's mom and the message of looking at things in a different way from Dead Poet Society are more important today than ever before with what we're seeing in the headlines in the world and national news. Have a great week.